0: Psalm 35, a psalm of David. Plead my cause, O Lord, with those who strive with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for my help. Also, draw out the spear and stop those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be put to shame and brought to dishonor who seek after my life. Let those be turned back and brought to confusion who plot my hurt. Let them be like chaff before the wind, and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery, and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. For without cause they have hidden their net for me in a pit, which they have dug without cause for my life. Let destruction come upon him unexpectedly, and let his net that he has hidden catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall, and my soul shall be joyful in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. All my bones shall say Lord who is like you delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him yes the poor and the needy from him who plunders him fierce witnesses rise up they ask me things that I do not know they reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul but as for me when they were sick my clothing was sackcloth I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer would return to my own heart I paced about as though he were my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one who mourns for his mother. But in my adversity, they rejoiced and gathered together. Attackers gathered against me, and I did not know it. They tore at me and did not cease. With ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue me from their destructions, my precious life from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. Let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. For they do not speak peace, but they (coughs) devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. They also opened their mouth wide against me and said, Aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. This you have seen, O Lord. Do not keep silence. O Lord, do not be far from me. Stir up yourself and awake to my vindication, to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Ah, so we have it. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Once again, Jesus all over it. You just read the Psalms and you think of what he went through and it's all over it. We are starting a new book of the Bible today. We've been in Leviticus now for just over a year. Actually, 51 sermons, but over a year because of our Christmas and Resurrection Day sermons. But Esther is a really wonderful book, even if you just read it as, you know, just as reading material and not really studying it or putting it in the context of what the Lord is doing in redemptive history. But I want to say, before I read the verses from Esther... That we have um, every week, and i got to thank him. He's just wonderful. You know in the back we have a picture from Exodus, which every time I look at it, it brings me to tears. It's so beautiful. It's the one with the, um, the girl, the widow, and the orphan that are mourning together. And the verse that says that the Lord will look after them. And he sent us that because it was such a, a precious painting. And uh, he does a painting every single week for our sermons from Ireland And this is something I didn't ask him to do. He just volunteered to do it. And he's done this faithfully all the way through Exodus and Leviticus. And he's uh, sent one for Esther today, the first chapter of Esther. And I want the audience that are going to watch this on YouTube to appreciate in advance that it has a partially naked woman on it. And there is a reason why it's that way. And I don't want somebody to be suddenly offended and click off the sermon without understanding the context of what is going on in this particular first chapter of Esther. So that's why I'm telling you that in advance is that uh, he understands the Bible very well. The person that does, uh, Doug is his name, and he um, understands the Bible well. He knows what's going on, and when he does a picture, it's always relevant to what's being described in the verses that we do. So if you see that and it suddenly shocks you, Just pay attention to the sermon, and you will understand why he did that, okay? But I need to now do something that I did not do last week. I need to move our marker from the end of Leviticus and find the book of Esther. So apologize about that. We'll be at Esther in just a second, and Chronicles Ezra, Esther. There we are. Okay, so we are in Esther. We're going to start in verse 1 today, and we're going to go through verse 12. It's entitled, Naughty Vashti, or A Party Gone Bad. Let me read you these verses. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Medea, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days 180 days in all sounds like a long party doesn't it well There's a reason why and you'll find out about it in a few minutes verse 5 and when these days were completed the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king." In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Just so you know, also, before I give you my thoughts on these verses, we are in the Old Testament, we've been there forever, and we're probably going to be there until the day I die at least, and somebody can take the mantle from there. We started in Genesis, we went from Genesis, we went to the Book of Ruth, then we went back to Exodus. We're taking a small book in between the books of the law. So Exodus, we went um, then to the Book of Jonah. Marvelous, marvelous stuff there. Then we went to Leviticus and we are now in the book of Esther before we go back to the Book of Numbers. The Book of Esther. Not having decided on what book we should do before returning to the Pentateuch, which is the Torah, the Law of Moses, I asked my, our friends, Sergio and Rhoda, to help me out. They never really gave me an answer until I had to know. Quite lazy of them, I'm sure. (laughs) Friday before sermon typing is when I do advanced work, such as typing poems and other non-sermon typing work. But one cannot type a poem for a book that they have not decided on. So I asked them that week, Sergio said, Esther, I had wanted to do the Song of Solomon. One had to give, and Esther comes before the Song of Solomon, so at least they will have been done in the right order by choosing Esther. And so I present to you the book of Esther. Esther is the 17th of the 66 books in the Christian Bible. It thus corresponds to Malachi, the 39th book, and to Peter, the 61st book, when the Bible is divided into three sets of 22 each. If you read your Bible in that format, you'll learn many wonderful things, parallels and patterns that just pop right out at you. It is a part of the Old Testament known as the Ketuvim, or the Writings. The three major divisions are the Torah, meaning the five books of Moses, the Nevi'im, or the prophets, and the Ketuvim, or the writings. Together they are called the Tanakh, which stands for Torah, Nevi'im, and then Ketuvim. So Tanakh is what the Jews call their testament. Esther is comprised of 10 chapters and totals 167 verses. Esther is also one of the five Megillah scrolls. That comes from the word galal, which means to roll. And thus it is a story, which is a detailed or embroidered account. It rolls along. The five megalot are the Song of Songs, read each year at the Passover. Ruth, read each year at Shavuot. Lamentations, read each year on the mournful day of the ninth of the month of Av. And Ecclesiastes, which is read each year at the Feast of Sukkot, and they finally end up with Esther which is read each year at the Feast of Purim. This is what the Jews read year upon year. Esther was the last book of the Old Testament to have been canonized by the Jews, meaning they went through each one and they said, that is surely of God, that is surely of God, and they got to Esther and they had to debate it. It was canonized and it was done so rightly. It is an important part of the canon of Scripture and also of Jewish history. The writing of Esther dates to the 4th century B.C., and the exact year will be given for the occurrences which it records. It is not sure who wrote this book, but it is probably not Mordecai, a main character of the story who most people say it is. The author distances himself from the person of Mordecai. However, several of the gospel writers do this as well, so it is not impossible that he authored it. The purpose of the book is almost always cited as to bring to remembrance the people and the events which brought about the Feast of Purim for the Jews. Thus, it would be an anchor back to their history and how they have remained as a unified people even to this day. A second, less cited reason, but one which is made, is to show the conflict between the people of Israel and the Amalekites. This is certainly a highlight of the book, warring against and gaining over the enemies of the people. This will be explained when the main antagonist of the story, a guy named Haman, is introduced. However, neither of these reasons is at all sufficient to describe the main purpose of this book. The book, and indeed all of the Bible, is not about the Jewish people. They are a main part of the subject matter, but the Bible is about the Lord, the Creator, The sovereign, the sustainer, the protector of his people, the one who may not even be acknowledged, and yet he is the one who is still there working behind the scenes to affect his purposes in redemptive history. In particular, the purpose is bringing to fruition his promise of a redeemer, the true subject of all scripture, Jesus Christ. The people of Israel were the people through whom he would come, and therefore it was necessary to keep them as a people in order for him to arrive. Further promises were made to them that they would always be kept as a people, even after the arrival of the Messiah. And therefore Esther shows the faithfulness of God to the stiff-necked and unfaithful group of people that he had covenanted with. Our text verse comes from Ezekiel chapter 36, It's verses 22 and 23. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst." And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. It's kind of a depressing text verse for a sermon to start with, but it is the reality of what occurs in Esther. Ezekiel was specifically speaking about the second return from exile, meaning Israel's return to the land in modern times. But the premise holds true for both exiles. Leviticus 26 explained what the Lord would do to the people if they failed to honor and obey him. He did as he promised, especially the promise of exile. It is the greatest tragedy of all the curses for the Jewish people. They became a people without a land and without their God openly evident in their lives. The events in Esther actually occurred after the return of the people to the land of Israel, but many Jews remained dispersed in foreign lands willingly. And so it is with the book of Esther that the Lord is not at all openly evident. He is never explicitly mentioned as Lord or God anywhere in the book of Esther. Other than fasting, which may not even have been to him, there is no mention of prayer, worship, or sacrifice in the entire book. The people have all but left him, and he has supposedly all but left them. And yet, the outcome of the book shows us that this is not so. Either extreme chance and happenstance directed the affairs, or the Lord was there, working behind the scenes to ensure things would come out as he covenanted with Israel. The truth of which is correct is obvious when searching the details of this book. Deuteronomy 31 says that in disobedience, the Lord would hide his face from the people and that many evils would befall them. He even repeats himself saying, and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done in that they have turned to other gods. To hide his face means that they would not know that he was there with them any longer. And thus it is in the book of Esther. The Lord is hidden. They are not in their homeland and they are about to face death. Total annihilation. You'll see that as we go through this book. But the Lord is there. Hidden? Yes, but the Lord is there. Four times in the book of Esther, the divine name, Yehovah, Yud he vav heh is how it's spelled in Hebrew, is secreted away in acrostics. That means the first letter of a word, and it can be the first letter of the word going this way or that way, or it can be the last letter of a word going this way or that way. Four times in the book of Esther, the name, the divine name, Yehovah, Yud Hey vav heh is hidden in this form. One other time in the book of Esther is the name that he proclaimed, to Moses on Mount Sinai, which is a or I am that I am, that is also found in acrostics in the book of Esther. He is there ensuring that all will turn out as it should. In God there is no lack, and for Israel who has forgotten the Lord, he has not forgotten them. His promise is to the people of the world. It is a promise of redemption and restoration, which goes back to the very fall of man. Without Israel, Christ would not have come. Israel must stand, and Israel will stand. From them came the Messiah, and to them Messiah will return. But it is not for Israel's sake that these things have or will come about, but for the sake of the Lord's holy name. This is the overarching purpose of the book of Esther, sanctifying the holy and yet unseen name of the Lord. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is a feast of 180 days. It's verses 1 through 4. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. The book of Esther begins with the words, Vehi or, and it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. Beginning a book with the word, and, might seem a bit unusual to our ears. It is as if we're reading and come to a new book and find it's merely a continuation of the same story which we have been reading all along. And for all intents and purposes, it is. God is revealing to us a single story, unfolding it in a logical sequence which may or may not be chronological, but each section fits in a fashion as orderly as if it is chronological. This same and begins the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Ezekiel, and Jonah. Beginning this way is certainly intended to show us an unraveling of a thought process which had already began elsewhere, and I would submit to you that it began at Genesis 1, verse 1. The name Ahashverosh, or as we transliterate it, Ahasuerus, is believed to come from the Persian kishayarsha Mm -hmm. signifying mighty eye or mighty man the name here needs to be explained the same name points to three different people in the bible one is found in daniel 9 verse 1 known as the father of darius and so he is identified as a person named sia zaris another is found in ezra 4 verse 6 he is identified as cambyses the son of cyrus The third is the person named here in Esther. Believed to be Xerxes, a Greek name derived from the word Ahasuerus. Xerxes is believed to mean warrior or hero among rulers. (coughs) Scholars do disagree on which Ahasuerus is being referred to, but Xerxes is generally accepted as correct. And this is more probable because of verse 1 continuing. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces. There's great specificity here in order to relay several things. The first is the greatness of the area over which Ahasuerus ruled. In this, it shows the magnitude of the danger in which the Jews would find themselves as a people in the coming narrative, and then also the greatness of the exaltation of the Jews because of the role of Esther and her cousin, the man Mordecai, both of whom will be introduced as we go on. The land that Ahasuerus controls is inclusive of the land of Israel. And secondly, the words are given to guide us to who the true Ahasuerus is. First, it says that he ruled over 127 provinces. Daniel 6 verse 1 says that under Darius the Mede, there was 120 satraps in the Persian Empire. That could simply be a rounding down of the exact number, or it is that the empire expanded after that time. The latter is probably correct. A person is not going to round down the number of his kingdom. The word translated as provinces is Medina. It is derived from the word din, which means to judge. This in turn comes from a root meaning to sail directly in a straight course. Thus, one is to judge without deviating from what is proper. Herodotus writes that the nations of Xerxes, that I believe is the proper king, were 60. And so this is referring not to nations, but to subdivisions of nations divided into provinces, or Medina. In total, they equal 127. And thirdly, verse one continues, from India to Ethiopia. Here it mentions Hodu or India. The Hebrew Hodu is formed from the Persian Hidush, which speaks specifically of India. It was subdued by Darius Hystaspes, the father of Xerxes, and so Xerxes was the inheritor of the rule of this province. And then finally it mentions Cush, or Ethiopia. The name goes all the way back to Genesis 2, verse 13, as a place identified with one of the four riverheads which came from the river flowing from Eden. But that is only given to identify the name which later came from Cush, the son of Ham, noted in Genesis 10, verse 6. Eventually, the name became associated with the people derived from this line who dwell in Ethiopia. The writings of Herodotus tell us that Cush, or Ethiopia, paid tribute to Xerxes. So we have abundant evidence that this is the correct man. The specificity of this verse of Esther has been given to us to properly identify the right person named Ahasuerus here. It is Xerxes who most exactly fits the details. Verse 2, in those days. The words bayameem hahem or in days the those signify a chronological explanation of the words of verse 1. Attention is being directed to this specific time of the reign of the Persian Empire. Verse 2 continues, When King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom. To sit on the throne of one's kingdom means to rule. In this case, it indicates that he is ruling with full authority over the entire kingdom just named. To sit would normally imply peace. But Persian kings sat on a throne even when they went to battle. This is actually seen, if any of you have seen the movie 300. The same king that fought against the Spartans at Thermopylae, those 300, is identified in this passage. Xerxes, he's the same person. At this point, though, he had not only assumed the throne, but all areas under his authority would have been subdued. Otherwise, he would have sat on a throne in battle, not in the royal residence. But there he sat on the throne of his kingdom, verse 2 continues, which is in Shushan, the citadel. The name Shushan is identical to the Hebrew word Shushan, meaning a lily. That, in turn, is derived from Sus, meaning to exalt or to rejoice. In some Bibles, the name is translated as Susa, rather than Shushan. Aristotle apparently visited this city and called it a wonderful royal palace, shining with gold, amber, and ivory. The word used to describe the citadel here is Birah. It signifies a castle, but it probably includes the idea of a fortress. David uses the same word twice in 1 Chronicles chapter 29 to describe the temple to be built before the Lord. The naming of the citadel Shushan then extends out to the naming of the entire city. This will be seen in Esther chapter 3. This was the main royal palace of the Persian Empire, but Ekbatana and Babylon were also residences for the Persian kings. This was Xerxes' favorite palace, and the one he used during the winter and spring months. It was from this main royal citadel that the story now begins to come alive, verse 3, that in the third year of his reign, the words here belong as a continuation of verse 1. If you take verse 1 and 3 and read them together, it'll make sense. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, that in the third year of his reign... With the identification of Xerxes being the king during this story, we can then identify the year that this is taking place as 483 BC. In fact, this has been identified as the time when he had called his leaders to make arrangements for invading Greece. It is for this most important campaign that, verse 3 continues, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants. The feasts of Persian kings were well-documented by those who participated. Some were said to have entertained as many as 15,000 subjects. The hall where this would have occurred is said to have been big enough for thousands and thousands to attend. Here the word feast is mishteh. It isn't a feast as in the feasts of the Lord from Leviticus 23. Rather, it is a feast where banqueting takes place. It comes from the word shata, meaning to drink. In this case, it is speaking of a banqueting feast revolving around the drinking of wine and the like. Verse 3 continues, the powers of Persia and Medea, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. The kingdom is one of both Persia and Medea. The Hebrew for Medea is the name Madai, who was first noted in Genesis 10, verse 2. He was the son of Japheth, the oldest son of Noah. Within this kingdom of the powers of Persia and Medea, a large group of people have been invited to participate in this feast. The word translated as powers is chel. It signifies an army and thus by extension an entrenchment. Thus the word powers looks to those people entrusted to maintain and safeguard the power of the empire. This feast probably included military generals as well as royal bodyguards and all of the like in that circumstance. Along with them were included the elites and the lower rulers of the nations and the provinces. One group of them here are called ha Partameem or the nobles. It is a Persian word brought into the Hebrew, which literally means first. It may be more info than you care to know, but the word is similar to the Greek word protos and the Latin word primus, which we're all aware of. They're etymologically similar to this Persian word. I'm going to say them again, Partameem, protos, primus. They're all three cultures are derived from the same son of Noah, Japheth. And if you want to understand the world in which we're living in today, the Iranians today are of the same descendants. They are not sons of Shem. And that's why we have the Arabs not favoring the Iranians. And they're actually siding with Israel against the Persians. This is very important to understand what's going on here, to understand the modern day in which we live. The Greeks were also sons of Japheth and the Latins meaning the Romans were also sons of Japheth and that's why the roots of these words are all etymologically similar it all goes back to these people in these verses right here verse 4 when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty there are a lot of superlatives used here to describe this scene riches glory kingdom splendor excellence majesty each is a noun in the Hebrew one being heaped upon the next to show how great this scene was. One word is a new one in the Bible, yakar, translated here as splendor. It's going to be used 17 times, but for the author of Esther, it is a favorite, being used 10 times in this small book of Esther. It comes from a verb meaning precious, and so it signifies wealth, but abstractly it gives a sense of honor, costliness, dignity, and so forth. All of this pomp was on display for and lavished upon the nobles of the land and it went on and on and on verse 4 continues for many days 180 days in all yamim rabim days in abundance as it would be unlikely that he would have had all of his nobles present at one time except maybe for an opening and closing of the feast he extended it so that all could come party enjoy and certainly give their thoughts on the conquest of Greece It was a party united to conduct a war planning session. During this time, troops would have been arranged, plans would have been made, resources from the provinces would have been mandated and allocated, ships would have been prepared, and so on. All of this is in accord with Daniel's prophecy of this coming great king named Xerxes. even pinpointing the reason for such a banquet in his prophecy. Believe it or not, Daniel wrote about this coming king and why he would be having this giant party is from Daniel 11, verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Hence, we have the movie 300 today because of exactly what Daniel prophesied and what we're reading about right now in the book of Esther. The riches of the king and of his kingdom are on display for all to see. And for those who are invited to come, a grand banquet for them there shall be. Those from near and those from far away, all who are invited are instructed to come. The banquet is set and it is a marvelous day as arrived the subjects of the kingdom. To stand in the presence of the king, what a thing to believe, what a thing to see. An honor that truly makes the heart sing. Yes, a grand banquet for the people there shall be. Our second thought today is a feast of seven days. It's verses five through nine. Verse five, and when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. After this 180 days of feasting for the nobles, a feasting which was intended to prepare for the coming war with Greece, a larger feast of a week's duration was then given for all of the citadel. This is defined as for the men of the realm in verse 9, but it included all from greatest to the least. One might ask why he would do this, but if the previous feast was as a time of planning for war, now the plans have been made. In the military, planning is made by the higher-ups, but eventually, everyone is included in what has been decided. The king was probably so satisfied with the prospects of a successful engagement that he held a feast to honor the battle to come, including everyone who would be so affected by a win or a loss. The word bitan or palace in this verse is not the same as citadel in verse 2. It is a rare word, found only three times in the book of Esther and nowhere else. It comes from the Hebrew word for house, and so it is actually at the residence of the king and in his royal garden that this feast took place. Hence, the amazing details of this royal palace are next given. Verse 6, there were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. The scene being described here is one of outdoor garden luxury. There would have been hangings above and along the open areas, especially of the royal colors of Persia, white and blue. The blue, however, was more of a violet in nature. The word translated as linen for the curtains here, karpas, was originally incorrectly translated by earlier versions as green. It is from a Persian word found only here in scripture, indicating fine linen. So if you have green there, make a note that it is not correct. These curtains would have been fastened to pillars of silver in bases of marble by beautifully dyed cords. Verse 6 continues, and the couches were of gold and silver. It is debated whether these couches were made of gold and silver or if they were covered with cushions of cloths of gold and silver embroidered into them. Both are possible, and records of antiquity speak of couches with frameworks of gold and of silver work. Verse 6 continues, on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. Three of the words used in this portion of this verse are found only here in the entire Bible. Thus, translations will vary widely as to what the colors and stones actually are, so don't argue over it. Being dogmatic might not be the best option, as the words are simply obscure. The final one translated as black marble is the word socheret. It may be from sochera, meaning a bulwark, and thus it would be a border pavement all the way around the garden. Regardless of the meanings, the beauty of the garden was certainly stunning. Verse 7, and they served drinks in golden vessels. Considering the size of the gathering, the wealth relayed here is astonishing. All of the cups for drinking were of gold, with the great attention on drinking here, and in other verses of the book, the term banquet is probably a better word than feast wine is the prominent item on display rather than food and the wine is highlighted by the drinking vessels and of special note verse 7 continues each vessel being different from the other the banquet was a form of artwork the curtains pillars and pavement were extravagant but so were the vessels no two were made alike in order to excite the eyes and bring a note of delight to the conversations which would arise everything was considered unique and magnificent due to its originality now imagine being the goldsmith being told you have to make 15,000 cups and all of them have to be different verse 7 continues with royal wine in abundance as the king had access to every wine from India all the way down to Ethiopia the storehouses would have been full and it would have been immensely varied in type and potency for the wine connoisseur of the time it would be more exciting than a trip through the finest wine store anywhere in America and surely nothing one enjoyed would be limited in supply because it was verse 7 continues according to the generosity of the king Keyad hamalech according to the hand of the king the hand is what bestows When a person holds something out with their hand, it is an indication of their generosity. If he holds out something of immense value or a very great amount, it is according to his wealth. Thus, according to the hand of the king means that his great riches and generosity to his subjects was being placed in prominent display. Before we continue, verse 7 has an interesting acrostic in it. In the words, or and vessels, from vessels diverse, with wine royal in abundance, according to the hand of the king, the first letter of each word backwards reads, and his name is the vine. You're the very first person ever to hear this. That's never been revealed in history before because Sergio did an acrostic search on this. He developed a program in order to do it and there is in those words and his name is the vine it is at first interesting because the verse deals with wine and more Jesus proclaimed I am the vine in John 15 verse 5 it is surely a reference then to Jesus the Lord being the one to watch over the events of the produce of the vine meaning wine which will then affect the outcome of what transpires during this banquet In the Bible, wine symbolizes the merging together of expressions into a result. The thing that ought to happen can happen, symbolized by the wine. There are more surprises for you coming that Sergio has fleshed out of the book of Esther, so stay tuned. (laughs) Verse 8, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. The word translated as law is found 21 times in the Bible, with 20 of them being found in the book of Esther. The only other time is in the book of Ezra, still speaking of the edict of a Persian king. It is a foreign word which indicates that the law was enacted just for this feast. The king had given special orders that anyone could drink as they saw fit and without compulsion. It is then at complete variance with the tradition of the Greeks who had a motto, drink or be gone. Verse eight continues for. So the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure in this. The king is showing exceptional care for his subjects. In essence, he is elevating each man's choice of drinking to the level of anyone else. As it said earlier, from the greatest to the least. No boss would dare to counter the king's edict. And so those under him were allowed to drink more than him or less than him without any fear of punishment. This goes with all stations and all men. It brought the people to an equality that would not exist at any other time. And it would have been a great motivator of them to love the king and be willing to honor him all the more with their work and their lives, remembering that they are heading out to battle. And he is doing this to garner their love. Okay, so that they will be willing to follow him into battle. Verse nine, Queen Vashti, the wife of Xerxes was a woman named by the Greeks as a mistress. Herodotus and others say that she was cruel and led a dissolute life. There's much speculation about whether this is Vashti or not. Maybe it's his later wife, Esther. We have no idea. If Vashti, it may be that Vashti is more of a nickname than her true name. This is possible based on its meaning. This Vashti is the only woman in the Bible with a name starting with a V. There's an obvious reason for this. First, she is the only Vashti in the Bible, and she will only be mentioned 10 times. Secondly, Hebrew technically does not have a V. The V sound is used, such as in the name Avraham, or the desert known as the Arava, but this is simply a B that is pronounced as a V. This is no different than our C being pronounced as a K. Everything is okay when it happens this way. There is really nothing to see. Her name is Persian, and it means in old Persian, the best. In more modern Persian, it would be beautiful woman. However, the name when transliterated into Hebrew carries a meaning all its own. A rather stunning pun, in fact. First, to spell it, it must be initiated with the letter Vav, which also makes a V sound. Vav at the beginning of a word or sentence normally means and, like at the beginning of the book of Esther, and, Vav, okay? However, it can also introduce a circumstantial clause. Nehemiah 2 verse 2 does this when the king asked Nehemiah why his face was so sad, where it says, Ve'ata enecha holei, since you are not sick. Taking the name Vashti and dropping this Vav then leaves the Hebrew word Sheti, meaning a drinking. That word is found only once in the entire Bible in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 17, where it mentions drunkenness. By reading the Vav, where it should be, in front of the word Sheti, to spell her name, you come to Vashti. You then have the conditional statement, when drinking. What is implied then? That's what you get. Please remember that as we watch her seal her own fate, but it is the king who also suffers as will be seen. In other words, this is what happens when someone drinks too much. Verse 9 continues, also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. It was custom of the Persians that the feasts of men and women would be kept separate. And so Vashti made her own banquet for the women at the royal house. The word bait, or house, is used here, is different from both verses 2 and verse 5, although it is similar to that found in verse 5, bitan. Interestingly, the words in Hebrew, "beit ha-melkut asher la or house royal, which belongs to the king, forms a backward acrostic le-ahav, or to love. How that will play into the story is yet to be seen isn't this exciting it's just wonderful there's marvelous treasure hidden in this book and some of it no person has ever seen or heard it except me and Sergio until your ears have heard it today this, we did this in the book of what is it Exodus we did this in the book of Esther I'm sorry Leviticus and we also did it in the book of Jonah we found things that nobody has ever come across before and it's so exciting when that happens because you're seeing God's mind revealed and some of the acrostics in here like the one that we went through about the drinking of wine are impossible to have been done. It's just impossible. I'm sorry. The chances of that are zero unless God was behind it. Keep that in mind. A palace garden filled with delight, beautiful stones and curtains to grace the eyes. Everything makes such a beautiful sight. To walk in the garden is its own special prize. Cups of gold, each marvelous and unique. It adds to the joy of the wine within. A banquet of wonder to last an entire week. It will be almost over before it does begin and wine to enjoy any amount desired will do. A wonderful banquet fit for a king. We shall enjoy the feast through and through. Such a marvelous time, it makes the heart sing. Our third and final thought today is the fury of the king, or Nati Vashti. It's verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. This is the ending of the special banquet for the people. The king was doing well from his seven days of drinking wine and decided the best thing to do to close out the feast would be to elate the hearts of the men, even beyond what the wine could do. And so, verse 10 continues, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcas, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. Sets of twos occurring in Esther are rather common. This is the first of them. There are two sets of seven names of the king's servants. The second set of seven names will be seen in verse 114. As we go through the book, I'm going to try to remember to give you the other sets of twos that are included. And there are quite a few, and they're very interesting. Twos in the Bible signify a contrast and yet a confirmation of something. These contrast as they are seven lowly eunuchs and then seven high nobles, but they confirm the orders of the king in regards to Queen Vashti. With the exception of Harbona, the names of these seven eunuchs are all mentioned only this once in the Bible. They're all Persian names, and unfortunately, it is total speculation as to what they mean. If there is a secret code in their meaning, it will remain that way. One may force meaning into them in order to find something secret, which people love to do with the Bible, but it will not be what the Bible intends for us to see. The number seven, like the Hebrews, was a sacred number to the Persians of old. It is the seventh day. There are seven eunuchs, and verse 10 is comprised of 21 words, or seven times three. That's about the most that I can give you concerning the number seven in verse 10. What I can tell you is that these seven eunuchs are selected to go to the queen on a mission. Verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown. One eunuch was sufficient to accomplish the task, unless it was an unusual task. We can't read too much into this, but the king is merry with wine, and the command is rather odd. Bring Queen Vashti before the king in her royal crown. The crown here is a unique word, kether. It will be seen three times in the book of Esther, and not again in the Bible. It comes from the word qatar, meaning to surround, and thus it is a circlet. It would encircle her head as a beautiful highlight. Albert Barnes, the famed theologian of back in the 18th or 17th century, says, this command, though contrary to Persian customs, is not out of harmony with the character of Xerxes and is evidently related to something strange and unusual. Otherwise, the queen would not have refused to come. The Targums may explain the matter. They include the word naked. In other words, the king is tipsy. He is now at the end of a week of feasting, and he wants to end it in a way that the people would never forget. And thus he sends seven eunuchs as a protective measure because it is possible that the crown is all she was to wear. This would certainly be justification for Vashti's response, and the following words make it, More of a possibility. Verse 11 continues, In order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. The king intended to show off her beauty. This is something she could do with all of her clothing on, and it is something the queens are famous for. And so unless she was being placed in a truly distressing situation, it makes little sense. Albert Barnes is right. Something strange and unusual seems tied to the request. Additionally, the word people is plural. It would be an indication that there were people of all different races and cultures in attendance. This would make the request even more appalling if this is what is being conveyed. It isn't worth arguing over, but verses 10 through 12 each have their own subtleties that do point to this. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. The queen, for whatever reason, from innocently not wanting to be around a room full of wind-up men of different cultures and positions, to not wanting to be highly embarrassed in front of the same, refuses the command of the king. This is something that was far more serious than almost anything else that she could do. Her very life could be forfeit, and it shows that the request must have had something more than what is explicitly stated. Many scholars say that it was the custom of the time to keep women, and especially queens, from the view of other men. This is not at all borne out by either scripture in general or the book of Esther in particular. Rather, Vashti's refusal came from something which had placed her in a truly undignified position. If the Targums are correct, she has done the right thing. If not, then what comes upon her will be justly deserved. Either way, verse 12 finishes with these words. Therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. This brings in another set of twos. Here the king's anger burns against Vashti. In verse 7-7, the king's anger will burn against Haman. They contrast one is to a woman and the other is to a man, but they confirm royal authority. One will lead to a new wife for the king, a Jewess, and the other will lead to a new second ruler for the kingdom, a Jew. Of the anger of the king, Proverbs 16, verse 13 says, As messengers of death is the king's wrath, but a wise man will appease it. Such is true here. It will take the wise counsel of others to resolve this situation and also to save the queen's life. For now, all we can do is wait and see what will transpire in the pages ahead. But the story begins as it does for a reason. It is to show how certain circumstances will lead one to another to bring about an end which is completely unsuspected at the beginning. This is often how the Lord works in us. If we just pay attention to how things will come out, we can look back on all of the mistakes and stupid decisions that we've made, and yet they seem to lead to the most marvelous events in our life. We can look back and say, if I didn't do that, I would never have met such and so. Or maybe if that terrible day didn't happen, I never would have gotten that promotion. For those who don't know the Lord, it all seems like random chance and accidental luck or misfortune. But when God is put into the equation, we see that everything happens, good or bad, it suddenly comes out as it does for a reason. This will be one of the major themes of Esther, and it is a major theme of everyone before meeting the Lord. We don't even consider that he is there, but he is there. How much more, then, should we realize that now that we know him personally? If your week was tough, know that it had a purpose. If your week ahead is tough, know that it will serve a purpose. In the end, the Lord is in the background, tending to you with care that you can't even fathom. That is even true for those who haven't yet called on Jesus, but who are destined to do so. Who knows? Maybe you don't know the Lord, but you decided to hear this sermon because you were curious about the book. I'll do my best to instruct you on the book, but it is the Lord you should be seeking. If you haven't accepted God's offer of peace through Jesus Christ, let today be the day. And then you will understand not just why you came to this sermon, but why everything in your life has happened as it has. I assure you, the Lord will reveal it all to you in due time. So let's take a moment and talk about why Jesus came. This book is about Jesus. He is never mentioned there explicitly, but we've already seen the name of the Lord is hidden in there four times. And I am that I am. A.A. is in there once as well. And then we have other references to the Lord. I am the vine. He's there. He's in the background of this book. And the Jews would not have put that in there if they knew that it pointed to Jesus, right? The same is true with your life. Jesus is the point of scripture. He is the point of everything. And without him, there is no point to life. That is all there is to it. The Bible wants us to know from the very first pages, even the very first sentence, if you know the structure of the sentence and what it says there, Bereshit Elohim et every single word of that is pointing, believe it or not, to Jesus Christ. There are so many references to him in those seven words that it is astonishing. All right. God is trying to wake us up. He may be hidden in this book but he is there. He may be hidden in your life, but he is there, and he's calling out to you subtly. Now, it takes a lot of work to find things like this in the book of Esther. I did not find, and Sergio did not find the four names of the Lord. Those were found many, many centuries ago, probably. But all of these other things that we have found are showing us that the Lord really is there. It's not just that some Jews inserted this name of the Lord. There are things in there that are absolutely zero possibility of coming out with that divine hand. And so your life is being monitored just as the book of Esther is. The Lord came and died on a cross so that we could be reconciled to God. And without that cross, there is no reconciliation to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but through me. That is an exclusive statement in a society where exclusive statements are disliked immensely. But that is what the Bible proclaims. It's validated by everything we know about Jesus Christ from the sign of circumcision in Abraham all the way through to the giving of the law all the way through to the gospel accounts which record that he fulfilled the law in those gospels as recorded so that he was qualified and he was capable to take away our sin and then he gave his life up in the way that the law allows a manner which provides substitution. I will give my life so that somebody else may live. And so he gave his life up, and anybody who believes in that, the Bible says, will be saved. And he proved it by coming out of the grave. The wages of sin is death. He came out of the grave, and that proves that he had no sin of his own. And when you call on Jesus Christ your sins, go into the grave with him. And you come out with him without your sins. The law is now dead. It is annulled. It is set aside. It is obsolete. We are not under law. We are under grace. God is reconciling the world to himself, not imputing men's sins to them. This is what the Bible teaches, but you must call on Jesus Christ. So I would ask you today, if you have never done this, that you would do so. And then when you start looking at the book of Esther next week and the week after that, you're going to say, wow, even if he doesn't talk about Jesus through the whole sermon, he's right there. He's right there because it's leading the Jewish people to bringing in their Messiah. Wonderful stuff. Please call on Jesus. Our closing verse is kind of appropriate. It's from Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. All right, now, this is not a teetotaling church. There is nothing in the Bible says that you cannot drink. I want you to know that. I will never mishandle scripture one way or another. It doesn't matter if I drink or if I do. I don't care if you do or if you don't. The Bible will tell you, though, that if you do drink, do it in moderation. Don't go getting drunk, because when you drink, this is going to happen, just as her name implied, okay? So do whatever you want. There's nothing in the Bible to say that you can't. That's totally your choice. Next week is uh, Esther. I keep wanting to say Exodus today. Is Esther 1, 13 through 22. You'd better do as he says if you are his spouse. It's entitled Master of the House, and that'll be her second Esther sermon, The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. At times, you might feel as if he has no great design for you in life, but he has brought you to this moment to reveal his glory in and through you. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Got a short poem for you, only 12 verses, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. It's called A Party Gone Bad. (laughs) Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, as the Bible is explained. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his kingdom's throne, which was in Shushan the Citadel, as the Bible to us makes known, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants too, the powers of Persia and Medea the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him so he did do when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days yes days in all 180 and when these days were completed the king made a feast lasting seven days For all the people who were present in Shushan the Citadel, a feast surely to amaze. From great to small, so we are told this thing in the court of the garden of the palace of the king. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen also, and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches of gold and silver, as we know. On a mosaic pavement of alabaster turquoise also, and white and black marble, really quite a show. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, a most impressive thing, with royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory, for so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that such was how it should be, that they should do according to each man's pleasure and serve freely without measure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, Yes, in that royal place, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded, Nehuman, Biza, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. So the king demanded to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and all the officials. For she was beautiful to behold, she could really knock him down. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command to be brought by the eunuchs of the king. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him because Vashti refused this thing. Lord God, thank you for your presence that is with us even when we don't realize that you are there. Because you sent your own son, Jesus, we can know that you truly do care. And so, Lord, be real to us in a wonderful new way. Open our minds and our hearts to seeing you always through every step we take and throughout every day. Be real to us, O God, and to you we shall give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful book and a wonderful opening to it. And certainly we look forward to the mysteries that are in it. And I would pray that you would Open them so that I would be able to present them properly to the people here without making anything up, but with exciting them with the mysteries that you have hidden in there. It is marvelous to consider. Lord, thank you for the book of Esther that shows us that the Jewish people are your people despite their rebellion because you covenanted with them, which shows us that you are faithful to your covenant and that you are not going to break your covenant under any circumstances even when we disobey And that leads us directly to the cross of Christ. You have made a covenant, a new covenant, in his blood for us. And if we call on you, we are saved. Even if we err and stray like the stiff-necked people that we are, we are saved despite ourselves. Thank you for the surety that you will never break your covenant with us. You are such a great God, so merciful, so graceful, so wonderful. We praise you, we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' beautiful name, amen. So Vashti wasn't drinking that. She was drinking in her own. That's why we can't know, because it says they were having a party, and the word is, you know, mishdeh, which is a, a banquet, and the word comes from shatah, which means drinking, so we, we can assume that they were drinking as well. So we don't know who's guilty. she behaved when she got drunk. Well, it could be, but it could be that the thing that the targums added in, in which I had already implicitly understood to be, could be wrong. So I don't want to be dogmatic about that. One way or another. It could be that the king was entirely wrong. It could be that Vashti was entirely wrong. Or I'm not going to wear that today because this shirt is is just not allowing that at all. (laughs) Anyway.